Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. And a very happy and healthy New Year to you all. Even though it's the 7th of January, I haven't been on since the 1st. Uh, wish you all a good year. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker in my daytime job with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On most shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional public official. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes, which are available on podcast, have covered subjects like the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting relationship with New York, about half of them actually. Uh, we've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. Uh, we've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, and they've been here 200 years, believe it or not. And we've covered the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way, so if you listen to them, you won't hear punk and opera in the same show. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks. We'll go to the subway. We'll visit some of our grander train stations and even the city in the age of a specific social or political movement. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are other services out there as well. Well, this is also a red-letter week because one year ago, actually 52 weeks, so it's 364 days ago, we started our show. This is our first anniversary show, and tonight we're visiting a special neighborhood in New York. It's in Queens, Jackson Heights. Our first guest is a noted historian for Queens, Jason Antos. Jason is a journalist and an author of six well-received books on the borough of Queens. He's a graduate of the University of Miami and is a lifelong New Yorker. His family has lived in the five boroughs since 1913. His first book was on the history of Whitestone. It was published in 2006 when he was 25. In 2007, he wrote the first history book ever written on Shea Stadium. I still call when the Mets play Shea Stadium. I'm of that age. I think some people do. Uh, it's currently in its fourth printing. Wow. His latest book will be on the history of Douglaston and Little Neck. Jason is currently on the board of the Queens Historical Society. Jason, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Oh, thank you for having me. You're originally from New York, aren't you? Oh, yes. And you've lived in Queens your whole life? My entire life. Uh, where do you live now? I live in Whitestone, uh, more specifically in a suburb called Beechhurst, which is the northern tip of the borough. Oh, that's by, that's by the bridge? Yep. Okay. Um, when did you first become interested in studying the history of the city and, and bringing it to other people? Well, I started... Uh, Believe it or not, when I was in grade school, uh, sure we, I believe it. We had to do a book report on um, things in our neighborhood. That was the topic, and at that time, uh, across the street from me, there was a very old home that belonged to a magician named Thurston, named Howard Thurston, who was the um, teacher of Houdini, and he had lived in that house. He actually built that house for himself and his family. And the Thurston family lived there until the 1950s, uh, and then several other families occupied the house, and I chose that home to do it as a, for my book report, and that's really how it started on. Oh, wow. And um, did, is that the point that you also got interested in the, in the history of Queens from that? Oh, yeah. yeah. When and how did you get involved with the Queens Historical Society? Queens Historical Society was uh, one of the first uh, places that uh, I went to to do research when I landed the first book deal back in 05. Uh, by the way, as of, uh, I got the call this morning, as of this afternoon, I'm the acting president of the Queen's Historical Society. Well, I hope congratulations are in order. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so congratulations. hopefully every, all will be, be good there. Um, but yeah, the Queen's Historical was the first uh, organization that I contacted when I landed the Whitestone uh, book deal. Um, they were very surprised because I was like one of the youngest people to show up to do research. I, mean, I was 24, 25 at the time. Um, and I, well, you, you know, obviously have it in you in your blood to yeah. be, uh, to want to go and to, and, and to do historical research. And I, I really was, you know, I went there and they were like, do you know what you need? And I really, you know, had everything detailed 
uh, you know, what I was looking for. And they were very impressed with, you know, like my knowledge of, of Whitestone and what I had been able to pull together. And, you know, we just, I hit it off with the people there and it's been an ongoing friendship for the past, you know, 15 years. Well, that's great. You know, one of, um, we didn't talk about this before airtime, but uh, I studied history at, in college okay. and I studied abroad. And one of the most uh, rewarding things I've ever done is actually historical research in government archives, but in the, in the early 80s. But in those days, they didn't have any computer systems. It was right. all, all done by book and file and you had to go through every year. Let's move to Jackson Heights. How did the neighborhood get its name, Jason? So Jackson Heights uh, started off, um, like most of Queens County, as farmland. Um, at the time, it was the largest uh, farm buyout in the United States when the Queensboro Corporation came and purchased the land. Um, it was originally known as Trains Meadow, um, but they feel that the word trains is a corruption of the word drain because that there were a lot of uh, creeks and bogs in that area and they would the according to the tide they would drain in and out so it, it had the term of drains meadow um, and people would go duck hunting geese hunting there I mean that's pretty much what it was and some and there were some uh, potato farms on the outskirts of what would be Jackson Heights but the name Jackson Heights uh, comes from uh, Northern Boulevard which was known as Jackson Avenue and uh, at, the, at that time, when construction first started, it's on an elevated part of the terrain of Queens, um, and you could have, you had a tremendous view, like a 360 view all around. Now, of course, quite different, but that's where Jackson Heights comes from. I was going to ask about that because uh, although the streets slope up a little bit from like Elmhurst and LaGuardia, uh, and I've taken that walk from the M60 mm -hmm. bus to visit friends of mine at Jackson Heights, uh, it's it's a little bit uphill, but it's not like heights like Brooklyn Heights or uh, yeah. Hudson Heights. Uh, so how did I wonder how it was? There any special reason that it, they called it Heights as well as Jackson? Or well, I mean, it, it also um, Heights also. It's a, a lot of the towns they come from. Uh, it's a it's a marketing thing, you know. Jackson Heights. It has a, a, a name of distinction, uh, fancy sounding. Uh, that's why another. Uh, Example would be why you have a lot of towns that are named after places in Greece, like you have Athens, Georgia, mm -hmm. or you have um, Marathon Parkway in Queens, which used to go to the village of Marathon, or you have uh, Ulysses, New York. You have names that are named after ancient Greek because it would add uh, like a, a distinction to the to the town. You know, it was a marketing purpose. So Jackson Heights, you know, anything with heights in it mm -hmm. at that time was like a buzzword for well, I know sophisticated. That, uh I'm a native Brooklynite, and uh, Borum Hill was a, the name, name was an invention of the real estate industry back, I think, in the 60s. Yeah. And there's no hill in Borum Hill. Right. It's, there you uh, go. I think maybe 20 feet or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in the history of the Dutch in New York. Yes. Um, was there anything significant that happened in the area of Jackson Heights when the Dutch were here? Uh, not really. I mean, it was, uh, you had the Dutch in Long Island City and in neighboring Elmhurst. Um, and towards the northern shore of the borough, um, primarily where LaGuardia Airport is located today. In those days, LaGuardia Airport, before the airport, it was known as North Beach. It was an amusement park, just like Coney Island. It was the Coney Island of the North Shore. And when you do research in that area, you come across a lot of Dutch names and uh, also people who were known as uh, uh, Huguenots. And um, so you have like a lot of Rappelies and Riker and, and all that type of... Uh, and Onderdonk and those types of names. But when you come into Jackson Heights, uh, it was a very, um, some British background, a smattering of Dutch, but mainly um, English. Was there any significant history there around the Revolution? So much of New York was engaged in the Battle sure. of Long Island, quote-unquote. Yes. Uh, um, Jackson Heights, not so much. It was, um, a lot of the activity was isolated in Flushing and in Jamaica. Jamaica was the um, headquarters for the British Army. And on November 25th, which is Evacuation Day, which was one of the most important holidays in New York, which became then overshadowed by Thanksgiving, because it happens around the same time, uh, that's where the British were evacuated from on Jamaica Avenue at the end of the Revolutionary War. Mm. So Flushing, Flushing in Jamaica, you really have, um, that's like the central of the Revolutionary War activity. Mm. Well, let's fast forward about 100 years to the end of the 19th century. Sure. Um, and I do want to ask you in a minute about uh, 
some of the developments in Jackson Heights and how the and how the neighborhood got developed, and sure. also about how transportation and infrastructure. But one thing I wanted to ask is if the consolidation of the city itself, if the act of consolidation in 1898, uh, how that impacted development in the neighborhood that would become Jackson Heights. Well, sure. I mean, uh, one of the the biggest um, uh, things to really spur development was the coming of the IRT. So that's around. Um, 1917, so towards the beginning of World War I, uh, the IRT, which we would know today as the 7 train. Well, some of us still refer to I still, still think of it as the IRT. So is the IRT. And that, that you know, people follow, the, people follow the railroad. People follow public transportation. Um, it's a big draw. So when Jackson Heights is being developed, it coincides right at the time that the IRT is coming through Long Island City, through Sunnyside and Woodside into Jackson Heights. Um, so that's really the, the, the main time period of growth for Jackson Heights. That's, that's during the beginning, the genesis of its development. 1898, consolidation of New York, it's still primarily farmland at, mm-hmm. at that point. And Queens was real, unlike Brooklyn, which was a, uh, an incorporated city. It was, the, I think, mm-hmm. at that point, the second largest city in the country. Uh, uh, Queens was relatively uh, less populated. Oh, yeah. And on a prior show in Forest Hills, I discovered that the city of Brooklyn actually owned Forest Park mm-hmm. <laughs> until the consolidation of the city. Um, the Queensboro Bridge was actually built before the Flushing IRT was built. Yes, uh, about uh, 10 years. So you have uh, 1908, 1909 is the opening of the bridge. Uh, Queensboro Bridge links Queens County with Manhattan. Um, and it's... Uh, it, it it begins development, but the IRT 10 years later in, in uh, 1917, 1918 really, really is the second and big push that really heralds the coming of, of these uh, Western Queens neighborhoods and the just absolute like boomtown growth of, of those areas. Hmm. Little self-promotion. We actually did a show. It's on podcast. Uh, about uh, two great bridges in New York. One of them uh, was the Queen, is the Queen is mm-hmm. the Queensboro Bridge. Um, Jason, what was the Garden City movement, and how did that impact the development of Jackson Heights? Garden City movement was a uh, a movement that really took hold in New York uh, very quickly, early in the 20th century. You have uh, Andrew J. Thomas, architect in Jackson Heights, and he developed many of the. Uh, buildings that many of those beautiful historical buildings that you see and courts and developments and uh, that you see in Jackson Heights and uh, uh, Jackson Heights, Forest Hills, uh, Forest Hills Gardens, you know, those were all um, uh, garden apartment movements. And uh, it was a thing to, um, you know, you're dealing with a clean slate. You're dealing with so many, so much acreage that's completely wide open. So you have the chance to really start, you know, fresh from the ground up and, you know, they wanted to um, have uh, like a middle class slash upper middle class feel to the to these uh, new developed areas. So the garden apartment was, you know, choice. They wanted to make it. They really wanted to advertise the area as the suburbs. Some yeah. of the some of the um, uh, a couple of the apartment blocks that I've seen in Jackson Heights, and I can't say I've been to all of them. Uh, actually, seem to predate Forest Hill Gardens and Forest and uh, oh, yeah. some of the, the buildings there. Um, who was Edward McDougall, and what was his involvement in residential development? In so Edward McDougall was a tremendous figure. He was a huge developer in Queens and Long Island. Uh, he was head of the Queensboro Corporation, which was the real estate company that um, bought out the farmland, uh, which was known as the Barclay Dugro Tract. Uh, as I mentioned before, it was the largest farm buyout in uh, the United States at the time. Uh, hundreds of acres uh, were purchased, and uh, he, you know, he's the mastermind behind this uh, movement, behind this uh, this community, which started off as a restricted community. Might I add? I don't know if you. Yeah, I was going to mention that there was a darker side to some of the early development yes. in Jackson Heights because it excluded Jewish people, African Americans, yes. uh, and other people as well. It uh, in the literature that we were able to discover, uh, it doesn't actually come right out and say it. But there is subversive language to the real estate pamphlets. One of them, which reads, uh, I'm paraphrasing, it says, um, Jackson Heights is a community uh, in which you will live amongst the type of people that you would want to associate with. And, and that's like an unwritten rule for 
Sounds like a more recent developer in the borough of Queens, but we won't get into that. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jason Antos, who's a historian and now also the president of the Queens Historical Society. We'll be right back. Thank you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York, our one-year anniversary show, and tonight's journey is to Jackson Heights in Queens. My first guest is Jason Ed of the Queens Historical Society. Uh, Jason, uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the books that you've written. Your first book was on Whitestone? A- acting president. I don't want okay. to get in trouble here. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, so I know Bronco's probably listening tonight, so we don't want to... Um, the first book that you published was on Whitestone? Yes. Okay. And you also published a book on Jackson Heights? Yep. Uh, and one on Flushing? Flushing. And yeah. Shea Stadium. And Shea Stadium and uh, Queens Then and Now. Queen. Also. Do you have anything on the drawing board that hasn't been written or published yet? Um, well, I'm currently working on the history of Douglaston and Little Neck, um, which is uh, one of the most fascinating histories in Queens County. Um, so that one, will, I'm currently where it's actually due in a couple of weeks. Oh. And so mm-hmm. it'll be out hopefully by the late summer, early fall of this year. You, I'm, I'm not an aficionado of Queen's history and, and Queen's uh, historiography, but you must be up there in terms of writing books about neighborhoods in terms of... Oh, yes. Wow. Um, all right, moving back to Jackson Heights, um, let's talk about some of the earlier developments. What was Laurel Court? Laurel Court or Linden? Linden, L- Linden. Linden Court, I'm sorry. Linden Court. <laughs> Linden Court is a multi-building complex um, that is one of the um, most historic uh, buildings, uh, complexes in, in uh, Jackson Heights. Uh, anything specific that you want to know about? No, what, I mean, uh, uh, what makes it uh, so of note? What, was it, what, what is it about the design or about well, the Well, it's, it it's one that? of the, the, fir- the earliest uh, examples of a garden apartment in, uh, in Queens. And this um, was the, during what was known as the golden era the of golden residential era, yeah. construction in Queens? 1917, 1919, I believe, is, is the era. Um, so that happened right was, after the subway opened up. Oh yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, you know, it's uh, when you see old photos of that area, it's amazing because you'll see certain complexes completely finished, and then the property next door is completely vacant. So there was uh, there was a time where if you lived, you know, on a high enough floor, you know, you would you would your view of the city was just you know incredible. You know, I'm not saying that there's bad views now, but it was just you know the the construction was staged and layered so that you know as time went on, you had more of these lots being filled and you know so actually some of the first buildings that went up you would have unobstructed views for unobstructed miles around view, absolutely um wasn't once like uh, a building in jackson heights the tall i'm having some recollection of something i read about it that was, it, it was the tallest building in queens for a while i i would, wouldn't be surprised okay 
You know, I have an interesting question from a, a, a residential and construction standpoint. Um, do we know when the first apartment buildings were built in the, that had elevators were built in the neighborhoods? Because because some of the original ones didn't have elevators. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with with early 1920s because that also co oh sorry that also coincides with the opening of the first building with an elevator in Flushing, which is on College Point Boulevard. The building is still there, and um, if you look in uh, issues of uh, Queensborough Magazine, which is a magazine that's put out by the Queens Chamber of Commerce. Um, they would have uh, articles about buildings being built in Queens County with new Otis elevator technology. And that was like such a big draw, you know, an amazing feature. Um, so, yeah, you're talking, it wouldn't have been, it would not have been 1917. It definitely would have been after 1920. Mm. Because if there, there were buildings in Manhattan that had elevators way before that, but not, yeah. but Queens would probably have been more middle class and more suburban and yes. figuring people could walk up steps. Um at one point, there was an airport in Jackson Heights. There was a Holmes Airport. Where was it? Holmes Airport was located today uh, where the Bulova building is off of the BQE slash Grand Central Parkway. Wasn't that Curtis? I thought that was Curtis Field. No, that, no Curtis is, uh, it was adjoining uh, Holmes. Curtis was more okay. uh, closer to LaGuardia. Uh, you had, it was like a, that, was, that whole area was like the area drome of, of Queens. You had Holmes. Then you had Curtis, which is where kind of like where LaGuardia is today. And then further east of that, you had uh, Flushing Airport or Speeds Airport, which was in College Point. But Holmes Airport was uh, a docking station for the Goodyear blimp. Um, I just acquired some uh, photo negatives a month ago of the Goodyear blimp hangar at uh, Holmes Airport, which is very rare. You don't really get to see those images. Um, but yeah, that was... I think Holmes Airport shut in when uh, New York Airport, when LaGuardia was opened yeah. up and started taking... Uh, well, actually, LaGuardia started... I mean, we're not talking about LaGuardia on this show much, but um, uh, LaGuardia had been... A, Curtis was... That's right now I remember. It was Curtis. That had uh, taken airplanes uh, since the 20s and then started with the flying boats in 1939, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Flushing... Uh, old, that the runway is still in Flushing Airport, isn't it? This part of a, se a sectioned off... Uh, it, it's it, not an airport anymore, but it's like part of the runway is still there. In, in, believe it or not, it's, it's now a, a through street to go from where the movie theater is off of the Wiseau Expressway into College Point. And this was done recently. It was done, recently, it was done about five years ago. But up until 2013, 2014... Uh, they had the hangars were still there with with the runway, and um, you know the um, you could even see the flags, the, the the orange cones that would go up to show which way the wind was blowing. Uh -huh. I mean, all of that was still there, and it was there until around 2014. Then in 15, they laid the road out over the right of way of the runway. God, it doesn't seem like I'm, I'm almost 60. Uh, I used to go to Brooklyn Day Camp, which was in the Rockaways. And we would go on Flatbush Avenue past Floyd Bennett Field, which still had active mm -hmm. uh, New York State uh, military air transport. So wow. it was really interesting going 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 there. Um, and more recently, like many neighborhoods, uh, more immigrant communities settled in Jackson Heights. When did immigrants start moving to the neighborhood in bigger numbers? Well, you would, you would have um, I mean, there's there's always the flow of immigration, but in terms of uh, massive flow. You know, uptick, if you will. Uh, you're talking about after uh, World War II, there's a massive influx. Um, you have a lot of uh, Jewish immigrants from Russia and from Western Europe. Uh, you have an influx of Italian, um, German, Irish, a lot of Italian moving into neighboring Corona, a lot of, a lot of Italian in, in Corona, as well as Jewish. Uh, Russian Jews are uh, Jews from Ukraine area. Um, and this is uh, goes until the until the '60s, and then more uh, Latin American groups and Caribbean uh, flux starts happening around the '60s, '70s. And Jackson Heights is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city now. I, yeah, I, is it is is it considered the most diverse, or is Flushing? I keep losing that. Uh, well, I, I I would I I would like to think that Jackson Heights would would uh, probably be the most diverse. I mean the the whole I mean Queens County is the most diverse county in in the United States. I mean that's um, a major draw to the area. Uh, Flushing Jackson Heights absolutely. 
And of course, like many parts of the city, uh, rental buildings started getting converted to co-ops in the 1980s, mm-hmm. which had more people living in Jackson Heights be able to achieve the American dream, owning, owning their own homes. Let's talk about the creation of the Jackson Heights Historic District. When did that happen? I believe it was in the early 90s, early 90s that that, that started. What kinds of buildings are included in the district? Uh, well, I know Linden Court is. Uh, uh, I know the, um, uh, the towers are uh, closer to the, to the B or and the chateau. Um, those, are, those are included in there. Well, in the, in the couple of minutes we have left, Jason, do you want to talk to us about your work at the, at the Queens Historical Society? Sure. I'm not going to ask you about how you became acting president, uh, <laughs> but, but, but what kind of work do you do for the society? Well, I've been on the board now for about three or four years. Uh, one of my responsibilities is I, I receive emails from people from all over the world doing research on Queens, um, people in academia, people doing uh, uh, genealogy work on their family, on their family's history, uh, asking a variety of questions. I just actually got an email uh, this morning from a professor uh, looking to do a project on the history of slavery in Queens and looking for help and looking where I can guide them for that information, if I can provide any information personally. And that's uh, and also I do uh, historical tours and slideshow presentations for them. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an honor because, like I said, I remember... You know, going there as a very young person right out of school, and you know they were the first people who I contacted. You know, when I was doing my first book, and you know, whenever you're in that position, you really don't know what you're doing. You know, you're just you know really going with the flow, and uh, you know, and here we are, 15 years later. Well, How old is the society? The Queens Historical Society began uh, a little over 50 years ago. Uh, it's uh, in the uh, Kingsland. Um, uh, um, Kingsland House, uh, right off of uh, Parsons Boulevard and 37th Avenue in Flushing. The home, uh, which is a uh, 200-year-plus farmhouse, was actually moved, physically moved, from another area in Flushing on flatbeds and reassembled uh, in its current spot, not too far from the Bound House. But we urge everybody to go online and check us out. We are the official historical society for all of Queens County. And the Bound House, I believe, is the oldest building in New York. It's is, the building is the oldest building. Yeah, 16, that's right. 64 right or something? Am I getting yes, that, uh, right? 16, uh, 60, 1660s. Okay. Predates when uh, the English took us over. Yep. Um, sounds like what they did to uh, the, what, what was the name of the house? Sorry, the one that the 200-year-old homestead. Uh, it was the same what they did with the uh, Lagrange Hamilton's Lagrange in Manhattan. They moved it. I actually saw when they were moving that up Convent oh. Avenue the second time they were moving it. All right. Well, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, our first guest on the show about Jackson Heights has been acting president of the Queens Historical Society, noted historian and author, Jason Antos. Uh, he's written books about Jackson Heights, Flushing, Whitestone, the famous Shea Stadium. We were Mets fans when I was growing up. And you can find those all on Amazon.com. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to have a, our second guest, a very special guest here to Rediscovering New York, a uh, member of the New York City Council. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka. Tom and his team specialize in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. You can reach them at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York, and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, an original name I know, but that's the handle. And also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. There I'm Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I am not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest on our show about Jackson Heights tonight is a very special guest, Council Member Daniel Drum. Council Member Drum has been a progressive leader in Queens for over 20 years. He was elected to the New York City Council in 2009 and represents District 25, which includes Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. In the council, Danny has been a tireless advocate with a proven record of delivering for the community. In the council's last term, he was the chair of the council's important education committee, which oversees the largest school system in the United States. In the council's current term, Danny is serving as the chairperson of the finance committee and is one of the two openly LGBT council members from outside Manhattan and is also a member of the council's LGBT caucus. Danny is a pioneer in the LGBT rights movement in New York and of the LGBT rights movement in Queens, where he organized the first Queens LGBT Pride Parade and Festival, which also takes place in Jackson Heights. Prior to his election, Danny was an award-winning New York City public school teacher at PS 199Q in Queens from 1984 to 2009. A fluent Spanish speaker, he graduated from Marist College and earned his master's degree at City College and he lives in Jackson Heights. Danny, a very hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It's great to be here. You're from New York originally and also grew up in Queens. Yes, that's true. That's right. yep. <laughs> when, did, when did you uh, first start living in Jackson Heights? Um, I moved to Jackson Heights the first time in 1981, uh, and I stayed there till about 87. Uh, my relationship broke up. I moved back to Flushing for a while, and then um, I moved back to Jackson Heights, and I bought a co-op in 2002, and I've been there since then. Hmm. When did you decide that you wanted to take up the noble profession of teaching? Um, when I was young, what I originally started out as uh, trying to do was to become a Spanish teacher, um, but I realized quickly that um, probably the kids in New York City uh, especially Latinos, could speak Spanish better than I could. So um, I said, you know, let me think about doing something else. And also, I was one of six Spanish majors at Marist College in Poughkeepsie. And uh, whenever I tried to cut class, the brother would call on the telephone and say, Mr. Drum, we're waiting for you to come to class. And so I really wanted a little bit more freedom. And I wound up having a dual major, uh, which is um, Spanish 
and communication arts. So, um, but when I came down to the city, my mom said to me, why don't you go back to doing what you originally wanted to do was teaching. And so I taught for 25 years at PS199Q in Sunnyside. I taught fourth grade, uh, nine-year-old kids. And uh, then I moved into the city council in 2009. Well, talk about um, your desire to and, and your motivations to get involved in public service. Um, but let's talk about your, your history of activism a little bit. Um, when did you first start hanging around the Gay Activist Alliance? Those people who don't know, GA Gay Activist Alliance was one of the earliest uh, gay and lesbian civil rights uh, groups in New York. It formed around the time of the Stonewall Riots in 69. I was nine years old. I don't remember exactly. But uh, um, what was it like to join and be around an LGBT rights organization right around the time of Stonewall and short afterward, right afterward? Sure. So I was uh, 13, I think, when Stonewall happened in 1969. And I wound up going to the firehouse because um, a friend I had met told me that there was this place called the Firehouse, which essentially was the first LGBT community center in New York City at 99 Wooster Street. And um, I went when there. When Soho was not the Soho that we know today. It was a very different right. neighborhood. Very different neighborhood. Uh, cobblestone streets. And, um, and it was a real firehouse. It was a firehouse that had a fire pole. Uh, it was not in good condition. Um, but I loved going there, and I loved meeting activists there in 1973. As a matter of fact, I remember drinking a beer uh, there, and um, sometimes it would be so hot uh, that the uh, pipes would sweat, and the sweat from the um, pipes would drip into your beer. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what it was like going to the firehouse. And did you still drink it? Or <laughs> Yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> and the pole was still there, too, but no fire trucks. No, exactly. And people um. would come down the pole, and <laughs> it was quite interesting. I w- is the building still there? Was it ever The building on? is still there, but I think it's been renovated now, and it may be a residence or a studio. Oh. Um, full disclosure, I've known Danny for a number of years, but uh, I didn't know you before you were elected to the council in 2009. What had you decide to run for the council and uh, move from one noble profession to, to serving people in, in another one? Well, you know, having been involved somewhat with the Gay Activist Alliance and joining their protests, going to their dances, I went to uh, meetings of Dignity, which was a gay Catholic group there at the firehouse as well. Um, I was always peripherally involved in the gay rights movement, um, but I didn't really get the name that I've gotten now uh, for being involved in the movement until I came out as an openly gay teacher in 1992 in response to a curriculum that was designed to teach tolerance of all of New York's diverse communities. It was called the Children of the Rainbow uh, Curriculum. And what was happening in that time was that uh, African-American men had been beaten up in places like Howard Beach and Bensonhurst. And it was around the time that Reverend Al Sharpton got a start. And uh, we were developing a curriculum that was designed to teach tolerance. And we decided to include three pages about LGBT families that was optional if teachers wanted to use it or found that they had children in their class who came from same-sex families. Uh, And my school board president, Mary Cummins at the time, objected to the curriculum and distorted the curriculum in my mind and made it seem like we were trying to teach Gay Sex 101. And uh, she brought uh, thousands of parents down to the Department of Education to protest the curriculum and actually was successful in getting the curriculum removed from the school and getting the chancellor, Joseph Fernandez at the time, fired from his job. Um, and, but prior to that firing of the chancellor, I went to a meeting at the Lesbian and Gay Community Services Center on 13th Street in Manhattan, and um, I knew that if I went there uh, and raised my hand, uh, the meeting was about the rainbow curriculum and the response that the gay community was trying to form, um, that I might become the center of, atta- of, of attraction by the media because I was a teacher in that specific district. And that's exactly what happened. And thank goodness I had tenure as a teacher Um, Because they did try to fire me, and they did come into my classroom, and they did try to remove me from my job. Um, But I prevailed, and obviously I was successful in prevailing, Um, but um, it was a rough time. Uh, And so um, at that time, um, I felt that we needed to define ourselves, especially in Queens, because Greenwich Village was the home to LGBT people, or that's what most people thought of. But a lot of us live in the outer boroughs and in the neighborhoods of uh, New York City. More gay and people live outside Manhattan than in Manhattan. Probably right, exactly. And so I said, you know what? We need to become more visible in the borough of Queens. And I came up with the idea of the Queens Pride Parade. We weren't sure how many people were going to show up for that first parade. 
But that first year, over 10,000 people came, and it was hugely successful. And when was the first parade? 1993. 27 years ago. Yep. And it was in Jackson Heights. Yep, and yes. it was in Jackson it still Heights. is in Jackson Heights. I've been to a couple, but I haven't been to most of them. Well, the important thing there also is that a young Latino man named Julio Rivera had been killed by three white supremacist skinheads out hunting, and that was the word that they used for a homosexual to kill. And they came upon Julio, they hit him over the head with a 40-ounce bottle of beer, and they stabbed him in the back and left him to die on a street corner. And that killing of Julio Rivera also helped to galvanize the community. So when you combine the killing of Julio with the opposition to the Children of the Rainbow curriculum, I knew that it was the right moment uh, to have this Pride Parade. And we've always tried to make Queen's Pride a, a mixture of party and politics, but we always had that, po that political edge because it really is a community parade. Mm. How, what was the impetus to get it started in Jackson Heights? Was it because people who lived there or was there uh, uh, easier permitting? What was the Well, Jackson happened? Heights had a long history of being um, accepting of LGBT people. I remember going to Jackson Heights to gay bars in 1973, and I know they were there even before that. Um, a lot of people think that that's probably because of its close proximity to Times Square and the actors, and you know it's a 15-minute subway ride away from, from uh, Times Square. Um, but we don't really know for sure. But Jackson Heights has had an open LGBT community, although quiet and more of a, a bedroom community in the sense that you know they went home to sleep and didn't make much trouble, um, uh, at least since 1973. Actually, you know, now that I'm remembering it, I, uh, I don't know if I ever told you, uh, I had a gay advertising business from 1986 to 1992. I used to publish the gay fun maps, and uh, they're still around. And um, I used to, uh, I had a map for Brooklyn and Queens, and I think Jackson Heights had the biggest concentration of gay bars anywhere in Queens. Now, Absolutely. I, and those I, forgot, bars, I forgot about that. Those bars were essential to support for the parade. Um, I do want to talk about Jackson Heights, but I got to ask you a question about being a member of the LGBT caucus. Uh, full disclosure here for our listeners who don't know, I'm gay, obviously, and I've been involved in LGBT organizations in the city, including activism since the 80s. But you've been involved in the movement for longer than I've been. Um, you're the oldest member of the council in the LGBT caucus, and you have a history of activism that other caucus members don't. Um, what kind of special perspective do you think that gives you, um, not only representing the people of Jackson Heights, but also the things that impact the lives of all New Yorkers? Well, I think it's one of the things that motivates me to especially want to focus on um, teaching of LGBT history in our public schools, because I really believe that that's a way to uh, create tolerance of LGBT people. So that's something that was unimaginable to me when I was a young person, that the LGBT words would even be mentioned in a public school environment. It's something that motivated me to come out as an openly gay teacher in 1992. And so knowing that history and that struggle to get to the point where we are today, where this council, along with the support of Speaker Corey Johnson, we put $3.7 million into um, LGBT programs, $1.3 million in programming just for public school students. Uh, so we are making inroads in that, and I think knowing that history, it's given me a, a good perspective of what LGBT and non-LGBT students need to know about our community. Well, as I've said before, uh, you're not only a great uh, public servant for the people of your district, but also for the people of the city. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Council Member Daniel Drum about Jackson Heights. We'll be right back. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? 
Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back to Rediscovering New York. My second guest is Council Member Danny Drom, who represents Jackson Heights and Elmhurst on the New York City Council. He's actually been on the council since 2010. Let's talk about Jackson Heights more, Danny. Uh, describe the vibe of the neighborhood. What do you like about it? Well, as uh, Jason Antos mentioned earlier, it's the diversity of the community, I think, that really makes Jackson Heights such an attractive place. It's said that there's over 167 different languages spoken in Jackson Heights, and I can tell you that there's probably one person from every country in the world who lives in the neighborhood. And I think that's what makes it so attractive. And it's always been known as a tolerant community, even though we had the murder of Julio Rivera, there's always been a large LGBT community there as well, as far back as I can remember. So I think that combination, uh, that no one group dominates either, um, is what makes it such an attractive place. Hmm. Is there anything else that excites you about, about Jackson Heights? As I mean, who the lives food, there? Yeah. the uh, cultural activities. You know, we have um, at least five or six, maybe even seven different cultural parades that either march up 37th Avenue or Northern Boulevard. And the costumes, you know, we have a Bolivian parade, a Colombian parade, an Ecuadorian parade. We, have, we celebrate Diwali. Uh, we have the LGBT Pride Parade. Um, so all of those cultures are celebrated in Jackson Heights. And you've great restaurants there, I, you know, especially on uh, Roosevelt Avenue. I've been there not probably as much as I, as I could or should. Um, when did you start living in Jackson Heights? What year was it? I lived in Jackson Heights from 81 to 87, and then again from 2002 till now. Have you seen Jackson Heights change over the years? Yes, I think so. I think that, you know, during the 80s, there were some serious um, crime problems, uh, especially with uh, cocaine and drug sales along Roosevelt Avenue. Um, a lot of that has changed now. I think the nature of drug dealing has changed. Um, Jackson Heights is a very safe community at this point. Uh, and then the nature of immigration has changed. If you come to Jackson Heights, you can literally see the patterns of immigration that are happening in the United States. Whereas you had Colombians, Ecuadorians, and Mexicans, then you had Indian folks, and then you had Pakistani, and you have Bangladeshi. Now we're getting immigrants from Tibet and from Nepal. So you can literally see um, the immigration pattern happening uh, in our neighborhood. Well, New York is so much the story of the United States of America, of people coming here when they, when they immigrate to the United States. And Queens is the borough where I think more people immigrate to than any place else, and Jackson Heights as well as Flushing. Um, is there anything that you struggle with in the neighborhood? Not just as an, well, as someone who, who lives there, but also as, as the member of the council who represents the neighborhood. I mean, we do worry somewhat about gentrification, uh, and we certainly want to prevent that from happening. Um, you used to be able to get a um, Chinese dinner for four ninety five. It included soup and a, and a real plate and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but no longer? Um, but no longer, so prices are going up, uh, rents are going up, and the cost of the garden apartments um, are also going up. Um, a garden apartment now probably goes as one bedroom for about $600,000 or so, and it's, that's almost as much as Manhattan. So um, we worry a little bit about that, but we have a good mixture of, of housing stock, and some are rent-stabilized, some are co-ops, you know, and you and have I a think lot of rent-regulated housing in Jackson. We do, and I think that mixture is what makes it such a great neighborhood. Mm. Well, something I've always found is that um, uh, neighborhoods uh, that do have rent-regulated housing, they keep them from, they change, but they, but they keep a neighborhood solid. They keep it, they evolve as opposed to really change, change rapidly. Yep. 
For as long as you lived in Jackson Heights, Danny, do you ever get surprised by anything you see in, in the neighborhood? Hmm, well, that's a good question, too. I don't really ever get too surprised. <laughs> but we have a number of Jackson Heights characters. And uh, so it's not uncommon to see Miss Columbia with a bird <laughs> on her hat and um, her dog in a um, push cart um, riding down the streets uh, and everybody cheering her along. Now, Miss Columbia is not a woman. Miss Columbia was a man, you know. And so, um, but Miss Columbia was welcome in our community. So when you have Jackson Heights characters like that, not much that can really surprise you. Oh. Uh, many of the neighborhood guests I have on the show are business owners. Um, as a public servant, you have a different role. But one thing I'd like to do is speak to people who might be interested in opening up a business in the neighborhood, especially for the first time. As someone who lives in Jackson Heights, but also as someone who, who represents it on the council, would you have any advice for someone who's looking to open up a business for the first time in Jackson Heights? Yeah, I mean, I think what you should do is go to the Small Business Services uh, Administration in New York City and get a course that they have there. Rents are very high in Jackson Heights. We have 99-cent stores that are, are, are being charged $14,000 a month in rent or higher. Um, so you have it, to sell it, a lot of dollar items to you, pay the rent on you, those. Wow. You certainly do. So I think you have to know your business. We have a lot of um, immigrant entrepreneurs who come, uh, and they um, and many, many, many do make it, um, but many have issues with um, you know really figuring out what their inventory is, what their stock is, what they're going to have to pay for rent versus what their income is going to be. I think you need to know those things before you open a business. Hmm. Is there anything in particular, business or otherwise, that you wish was in Jackson Heights but isn't right now? Oh, that's a good question. I know. Um, I ask good questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. They've pretty much got everything that you want in Jackson Heights. One of the reasons I moved to Jackson Heights is because it's a 24-hour uh, neighborhood, and so you can walk around and pretty much get anything that you want any time of day or night. So, um, and there are two yeah. subway lines that go right through it. So There are even more, right? Exactly. Yep. I know you, you, you mentioned that I ask good questions or I, uh, a couple of questions. Uh, I know this is going to sound like a little bit of a trick question, but I like to ask this of my, of my neighborhood guests. How do you see the future of Jackson Heights? Do you, have you ever thought about what it's going to be like 10 or 15 years from now? Sure. So Jackson Heights has seen a wave of progressivism coming into the neighborhood. We elected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as our congresswoman. So I would imagine that the neighborhood... Ousting the, the district leader of Queens. The, absolutely. Yeah. The, 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 the county leader of Queens, Joe Crowley. I meant, I meant the county leader. Yeah, I'm yep, sorry. yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that in that sense, it's probably going to get even more progressive, uh, especially in reaction to President Trump at this point. Um, but it's really nice to know that we have a progressive base like that and a tolerant base. Uh, for our listeners who don't live in the city, uh, New York City, we have term limits for elected officials. And Danny's term is going to end in just under two years, in a year and 51 weeks, actually, on Jan January 1st of 2022. Have you given any thought to what you're going to do professionally when uh, you're no longer on the city council? Yeah, I've given some thought, maybe going back to um, teaching, but maybe at the university level. I was uh, honored last week when I got notice that um, I have been given an honorary uh, professor of practice uh, degree from Queens University at Belfast. Uh, and the reason I, I mention that is because Hillary Clinton was just uh, announced as the chancellor of Queens University Belfast. So um, it's quite prestigious, and it's given me some ideas about perhaps going back to teaching at the college level. Mm. What would you like to teach? Uh, uh, government, go LGBT history, um, education, things like that, I think. Um, uh, so we'll have to figure that out. Of course, if... Um, my good friend Corey Johnson, who is running for mayor, or who we're encouraging to run for mayor, gets elected. Um, I'd love to work with Corey uh, in the administration. Of course, Corey hasn't declared yet. Even right. He's been, he's been ruminating about it. Um, what are some of the other initiatives that you're, that you're working on right now? So I want to um, you know, increase the funding that we've put into teaching for LGBT history and for LGBT programs in the public school system. I mean, we put in, what did I say, $1.2 million, but it's kind of a drop in the bucket because um, the budget for the Department of Education is $25 billion. You know? So I'd like to be able to uh, do more in terms of um, the education around um, LGBT history. Mm. $25 billion. What's the uh, city budget right now? Uh, $94 billion. 
So the biggest chunk goes to education, and it yep. is the largest public school system in the country. We have we have a million students in the well, one point one million. Wow, wow, unbelievable. Uh, well, I'm a product of uh, I went to a private school when I was uh, uh, in elementary school, but I'm uh, a product of a wonderful public high school, Midwood High School in Brooklyn, where I had amazing teachers. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say to our, our guests before we sign no, off? No, this is great, and I'm really happy to learn that you have people from all over the world listening to this um, uh, cast podcast, I guess, and um, it's, it's fascinating. Well, thanks. Well, you know, it's one of the things about New York is so many people think about New York, and people love New York, and um, I get comments from people from different places, not just New York City. Actually, we have more people listening to the show outside New York City than actually in New York City. Wow. Uh, Danny, thank you so much. Uh, we've just been speaking with our second guest, member of the city council, Daniel Drum, who represents Jackson Heights as well as Elmhurst in Queens. And our first guest was Jason Antos, who now is the new acting president of the Queens Historical Society. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion and bring the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who's going to be on the show next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And once again, a very happy and healthy New Year to you and your loved ones. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York 
weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 